0: Okay, Ecclesiastes. Back to Ecclesiastes. We began this study last uh, last Sunday, and uh, just getting into some sort of introductory uh, material and some some things that will help set our set a course for us over the next number of months. So I'm just going to fly through some of the things we we looked at um, uh, last uh, last time, and then we'll sort of pick up where we left off. We we looked uh, just in the way of introduction at the title of the book, uh, the t- the title. Ecclesiastes uh, it's, it's uh, the Hebrew it comes really it's uh, the Hebrew term is koheleth, simply means uh, preacher and the reason that the book is titled this is because the author of the book actually refers to himself uh, in this way seven different times throughout the book. Uh, he mentions refers to himself as the preacher uh, in chapter 1 verses 1, 2 and 12 uh, mentions uh, refers to himself again in chapter, 12 and verses 8, 9, and 10, and then in the middle of the book in chapter 7, uh, as as the preacher, uh, we we looked at sort of some some background behind that, and then we went on to just simply talk about who the author is of the book of Ecclesiastes. Lots of different opinions about uh, who the author is, um, but we get a significant clue about uh, the authorship of the book in verse 1 of chapter 1, where it simply says the words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So uh, I think verse 1 most naturally points to uh, Solomon as the author of the book. I think that makes the most sense for a number of reasons that we talked about. uh, The titles uh, that are mentioned here in chapter 1, verse 1, that are again mentioned in part down in chapter 1, verse 12, where he refers to himself as the preacher and as one who has, has been king over uh, Israel in Jerusalem. We also noticed in chapter 12, verse 9, that this individual, this preacher, or this Koheleth, uh, this one who addresses the assembly or the congregation, uh, was the author of many Proverbs, which we know to be true of, of Solomon. We, of course, have the book of Proverbs. We also have an explicit statement in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32 that states that Solomon spoke at least 3,000 Different proverbs, we then said there are some similarities some some remarkable similarities uh, between passages that we 'll look at in the coming weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes, particularly in chapter uh, in, in, in chapter ten uh, and there and the corresponding sections in the book of proverbs so there 's some 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 things we'll when we get to later into the book of Ecclesiastes we 'll see how some of the, the the writings some of the proverbs actually come over into into this particular book and are used. We also looked at several details about this preacher uh, in chapters one and two uh, that I think support the view that Solomon is the author. There's a reference in chapter in chapter one to his unrivaled wisdom, uh, reference in chapter two of his ability, this person's ability to really pursue whatever kind of worldly pleasure that he desired to pursue. Uh, he mentions in chapter 2 as well the extensive building activities and the expansion uh, under this particular individual, uh, a, lar- a large entourage of, of servants, as well as this uh, amazing wealth that he talks about in chapter 2, verse 8, and we'll look at those as when we get to that particular section. But there's really no other king in Israel that fits those fits those descriptions, that really really fits those particular factors of wisdom, when you put it all together, all the wisdom and all the works and all the wealth and all of the words better than Solomon himself. So this really has been the traditional view uh, accepted by uh, the Jewish and and Christian scholars alike uh, that Solomon wrote the book in in its entirety Uh, that really was uh, assumed in many ways up until the 19th century with some of the uh, criticism, um, form criticism, uh, this view uh, that there were multiple authors that there were people that there was an original author and people that came in other others that contributed to that work redacted that work changed that work some believe that uh, that, that there are as many as four different authors um, of this particular book so we just we just we we referenced some of those things just want to sort of put that 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 behind us. Uh, it's unfortunately a theme that we've hit on with a number of other studies that we've done, where we've just had to say, "Listen, this is what this is what uh, higher criticism has done." Uh, when we have studied Nahum and when we studied Jonah and and other books uh, in the past, it just seems that this issue keeps surfacing. Uh, so, anyway, we that's that's my take on the book uh, that Solomon is the author, and then we began to just from that point. Make some general observations um, about Solomon himself. We looked at his family. We mentioned his family and his family background. Some of these things that are uh, given to us, uh, particularly in, in the books of Chronicles and, and Kings, uh, we said that we, we know that, that uh, Solomon was the tenth son of David. Uh, he was the second son of Bathsheba. A second Samuel chapter three tells us that six of Solomon's brothers uh, had different. They had different mothers. So. Uh, just the potential here for a lot of turmoil, a lot of family turmoil, a lot of, of fam- family uh, conflicts, and, and of course all those, all those things actually play out in the life of both David and, and Solomon. We looked at Solomon's uh, rise to, to the throne in, in Israel, uh, the fact that God was the one that chose Solomon to succeed his father, uh, David publicly informed the nation about that and of course that stirred up a lot of uh, challenges for Solomon uh, right out of the gate we have the um, uh, we have the account where Adonijah uh, David's fourth son attempts to usurp the throne and uh, Solomon has him murdered that's recorded for us at the very beginning of, of 1 Kings in the first two chapters so we just noted how Solomon came to be in power, and then we sort of painted this portrait, this picture, what we see in the first, really the first nine chapters of 1 Kings, is sort of a portrait of a wise king. Uh, Solomon was given this opportunity to ask from God any, uh, anything, and he chose wisdom. He said, I, I, I want wisdom. Uh, I want wisdom for the purpose of providing leadership for God's people. And the Lord granted that graciously, abundantly. Uh, Solomon received a, a wise and an understanding heart from the Lord like, like no other uh, before him. And for that wisdom, we see that wisdom on display immediately in Solomon's life, but then over time what we see in these nine chapters is Solomon really gains renown. He, he gains a reputation. Uh, as someone who is who is exceedingly wise and is able to render uh, insightful judgments and decisions as king and so he he has this reputation that that we find in first kings that actually attracts all of the kings of the earth to his his courts, so we have all these other surrounding nations, and these people are so enamored with so captivated by solomon's Wisdom that they come from all four corners of the globe to, to seek out his his uh, his counsel. So he's he's his extraordinary wisdom. Uh, we also see that he has tremendous wealth, uh, that he has a, a tremendous amount of power. In fact, this is um, this is just a, a, a sort of a map of the kingdom of David and Solomon. This this uh, actually is smaller, this purple portion here, you'll notice this was Saul's kingdom. And then, of course, David became king after Saul. And so this green area is that expansion under David's reign. And then even beyond that, up into this area here with the reign of Solomon. So this really was a, a great uh, under, under initially Solomon's in those beginning years, first couple of decades or so, I guess, of his his reign, uh, a lot of expansion. Uh, Solomon had had an arm an army, uh, a very effective army. He had uh, the the most advanced weaponry, uh, access to all kinds of commodities, and it actually lists out all these different things that that he had access to. All these commodities, lots of lots of gold. Uh, this actually is a just a a picture here of all the trade trade routes uh, into the area of Palestine, and and some of the commodities that that uh, came from various parts of. Of the world, uh, so just really an, an amazing time in israel's uh, Israel's history and we find in first Kings chapter eight uh, that Solomon did what his father David desired to do but wasn't permitted to do because scripture says that David had been a man of war and and that was to build a permanent dwelling for God in Jerusalem uh, the city of David and this is actually sort of a, a picture of what that may have uh, may have may have looked like. So Solomon oversaw the construction of of this temple and 2 Chronicles chapters 5, 6 and 7 and mentions this over in Kings as well that on the day that when when the ark of the covenant was brought into the temple and the temple was dedicated to the Lord that Solomon fell on his face before the Lord and reminded the Lord of his his promises and and his and his covenant and then Scripture says that fire came down from heaven and devoured the burnt offerings and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So you just you see this sort of this sort of escalation. I mean, in Solomon's life uh, in the nation of Israel, uh, you, you might say Solomon was on top of the world uh, and the nation of Israel, we might even say, was never more wealthier, uh, never more unified, and never more filled with a sense of purpose. And then we come to 1 Kings chapter 9. And in 1 Kings 9, we, we begin to get a hint about Solomon's, Solomon's downfall, uh, his his foolishness, his immorality, his his idolatry. The Lord warned Solomon that he was to not forsake the Lord his God that he was not to adopt explicitly not to adopt other gods and to worship other gods and to serve other gods. So God explicitly warns Solomon about those things and yet what we see play out in Solomon's life is he does not heed those warnings. He does not pay attention to those warnings and becomes a very foolish king. We, we might even say that Solomon didn't take his own advice. Because one of the things that amazes you as you read through Kings and Chronicles is that you go, okay, but you're thinking about Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 6. And you're thinking, okay, what happened here? I mean, this guy, it seems over here had a clear thinking about the things to be careful of. And then you have this man also go through this time in his life when it seems that if he's, he has this understanding about these issues of life. But then he has this stubbornness of heart to not take his own his own uh, his own counsel. Spurgeon said that uh, the preachers need to learn to eat the eat the food that they serve out of their own kitchen, right? You know, so it's uh, so you get you got to taste it, right? It's not fair for, to cook the food and then give it to someone and not taste it. Make sure it's it's good, right? And and Solomon it seems didn't do that. He had this wisdom about life, but didn't seem to apply that and became very foolish. First Kings eleven tells us that he loved many foreign wives, foreign women. It says there that, that, that these wives, and the Lord warned him about this, that if he did that, that those wives would, would turn his heart away after their gods. And yet it says that Solomon held fast to, held fast to these in love. In fact, he had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines. And First Kings 11 verse 3 says that his wives turned his heart away. How far did they turn his heart away? Well, enough to where he was willing to build a high place for the idol of Moab. He was, he was willing to, to build a, a high place on the mountain east of Jerusalem for the idol of the Ammonites, Molech. Um, so, so Solomon goes from, from being a wise king to, to a foolish king. We say, well, well, why did he do that? And not only why did he do it, but what did he learn? What did he learn through all of those experiences in life? And what I would say is that the answer to some of those questions is, is, uh, are given to us in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, as far as the dating of Ecclesiastes, once, once you sort of accept uh, the, uh, Solomon as the author, the date and the occasion really become clear to us. Solomon was writing most likely in his later years, uh, we know that Solomon reigned for 40 years between, between 971 and 931 B.C. because we know the kingdom was divided uh, in 931 B.C. So I, I suspect that he wrote Ecclesiastes sometime between, say, 940, 932 B.C., uh, maybe that last decade, those last 10 years of his 40-year 40, 40 reign. So if that's the case, then, then we know that the, that the timing of the book is a time of decline. It's a time of decline in Solomon's personal life as his own reign sort of winds down. And the timing of the book is also a, a time of decline for the nation of Israel. So it's, it's sort of like his personal life and, and, and the direction that the nation is going are sort of running parallel. So when Solomon was, was doing well, the nation was expanding, and then as Solomon's own personal life began to deteriorate, so did the the um, condition of the nation. For a time, Israel enjoyed uh, and placed their hopes in their great prosperity, but the Davidic kingdom began to unravel under the reign of Solomon because of his disobedience to the covenant. So this united monarchy, this, this united monarchy, monarchy of Israel is beginning to show signs of demise. Uh, sadly, the people are, are expecting their material <clears throat> assets to save them, their, their connections to save them. Uh, there's already indications of suffering ahead. Uh, the, the people are, we might say, growing nostalgic about the good old days. And so things are starting to go down, and they're starting to think about, man, remember the day when, and there, there might even be reflecting back as Solomon would have been in his own personal life of, remember back in this time in my life when I, when I was faithful, uh, and, I, and so that the nation could have been experiencing those very same, same things. Uh, as far as the outline of the book, uh, well, there's a number of suggestions here. Some, some divide the book into two main parts. Um, Chapters 1 to 6, they sort of see chapters 1 to 6 as, a, as, a, um, as an autobiographical uh, polemic uh, that, that's a, that is designed to confront you with uh, the disillusionment of life. To discourage you, you might say, from pursuing uh, dead ends or uh, the, the logical ends of a world and, and life view that ignores God as the creator and judge of all men. Uh, In other words, the first first six chapters are are meant to destroy your false illusions about life and faith and to divorce you from earthly things, to divorce you from earthly things and then to ground you in in eternal things. And then to move on from chapter 6 into chapters 7 through the end of the book, really after sort of knocking out the crutches from underneath you and confronting you with the disillusionment, uh, then moving on to establish what is dependable to to give you and I counsel and comfort when facing evil days of difficulty ahead. Uh, Derek Kidner said this. He says he, speaking of Koheleth, the preacher the author, he Koheleth, uh, demolishes in order to build. So it's this idea that for six chapters we're we're tearing down, and then and for the for the remaining six chapters we're we're building back up. Um, so that's that's one way of of. Thinking about this book as we move through it, uh, I think the most helpful outlines are actually divided into four parts. And uh, I, I looked up several of these a survey of Old Testament, Gleason Archer. Uh, some of these I looked up. I don't even know exactly who the authors of them were. I just found the outlines. Uh, of course, I've got uh, William Barrick's uh, commentary on this Ecclesiastes. Uh, Walter Gualt Kaiser has a commentary on this. But a number of these commentators break the book down. In this particular way, this is just a sample of, uh, this is what Barrick, this is how William Barrick, he's a professor at the Master's Seminary, uh, sort of breaks this book down. And in chapters, essentially chapters 1 and 2, from experience, the preacher learns that man is powerless. Uh, Chapters 3 to 5, from observation, the preacher learns that God has a design for all things. Chapter 6 through almost the end of chapter 8, by application, the preacher finds the, the explanation for apparent inequalities in divine providence. And then, from chapter the very end of chapter eight to the end of the book, in conclusion, the preacher determines to fear God, obey God, and and enjoy life. And I think the reason why most commentators divide the book in this particular way is because there is a uh, a refrain. There is a recurring phrase or there is a or there are recurring phrases at the end of each of these main sections of the book. In other words, you get to the end of chapter two. You get to the end of chapter 5, and you get to the end of chapter 8, and you find this refrain. So I just want you to just note this. It's something we'll point out as we go along the way, but it kind of makes me, it makes me think of, of, a, of a sermon uh, in that you have this conclusion, this driving point in, in a sermon, and that's the thing that when you get to the end of the sermon, you're going to just, by that point, you ought to go, okay, we get it, <laughs> and you'll be saying that. Trust me. By the time we get through Ecclesiastes chapter twelve, you'll we'll be like, "Okay, Joel, we, we understand what this book is about. It's we we've, we've got it. We've been covering this for a long time." But that's what you do, and that's what you want to do in preaching, right? I mean, you want people to leave. If somebody grabs them in the hallways or leaving church, you say, "What was the point of the sermon today?" You don't want them to go, "Hmm, what was the point of the sermon today?" Right? I mean. If you're a good preacher, you want them to know what the point of the sermon was, and that, ser- that point is going to be the thing at the end of the sermon that you're going to really hit right at the very end. Say, in conclusion, and then you're going to make that point. But then along the way, the body of the sermon, you're going to be pointing to that the whole time, right? So if you look at a, a, a typical sermon, Shane may do this this morning, but you'll have this driving point, and then what you'll have are these sub points, right? You'll have maybe three or two or four things, five things, but all of those things are sort of driving at the main point. They're, they're, they're proving the conclusion. And that's basically what Solomon is doing. Is he's giving us a section and then he's making a point, And then he gives us another section and he makes a point, And he gives us another section and he makes a point, And then he goes, and in conclusion. And he gives us that. And by that point, we all, we all know exactly where Solomon's going. So just note these sections. I think it's important to do this. So chapter 2, uh, verse 24 it's the end of this, uh, this first section. It says, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind chapter 5 verse 8 uh, verse 18 here is what i have seen to be good and fitting you know it's a lot of the same terminology some similar phrases uh, here's here's what i've seen to be good and fitting to eat to drink and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which god has given him for this is his reward furthermore as for every man to whom god has given riches and wealth he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the years of his life, because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Chapter eight, verse eighteen verse fifteen. So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under son. And then we have the, the epilogue beginning in chapter 12, verse 9, and these final words in verse 13, the conclusion. When all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So here we have Solomon. We have Solomon in his old age, uh, I think looking back on the important turning points of his his life's career, uh, leaving, if you will, a, a final testament. You could say to his pe- to the people. Uh, you might also say to his own son, because in the Proverbs this was a regular thing. Right, my son, pay attention, my son, here. Solomon could still be saying this, and I'm sure he is. I mean, I'm still doing this. <laughs> My sons are getting older, but I'm still doing this, and, I, and you could fast forward 30 years, and I'm sure I'll still be saying that, right, to my children. Listen to this. Listen to these words. Pay attention to this counsel. So it's, I think Solomon looking back and leaving this, uh, this final testament to, his, to, to the people of Israel, to his own son, on the basis of his own life's experience, preaching a God-inspired message. Uh, maybe even because of this term, Kohelet, this idea of gathering an assembly and addressing an assembly, it's it's possible that, that Solomon is e- even gathering the members of his court, uh, intending for the scribes to take down these words and to send them out, to carry these words out uh, as a message not only to Israel but also to the nations that apart from God and His holy will, life lacks any ultimate meaning regardless of a person's education, regardless of their their health or their economic status or social influence. Uh, but when a man's relationship is to the Lord is right, it will be well with him. So maybe carrying this message out, it, it, it's interesting the term uh, Yahweh is not mentioned one time in this book. Uh, which is that sort of covenant name of God. And so some people have thought maybe the reason that's so is because maybe Solomon's intention was that this would go beyond the borders of Israel. Uh, because of all the alliances, because of all the connections, because of the influence that he had, that he would then later in life actually use some of those connections and that communication and those relationships to take this message to, to the nations. Now, what are some of the major themes of the book? Well, certainly vanity is a theme. It's the thing. If you ask, actually ask people, so what's, what's Ecclesiastes about? Vanity. That's Van- I mean, like the first thing that comes to people's minds. Uh, he- hebel is the word. And we'll look at this um, in just a little bit. But thir- 38 times it's used. It's actually 69, it's used 69 times in the Old Testament uh, uh, overall, but 38 of those times are in Ecclesiastes. So it's, it's definitely a word that punctuates this particular book. As a few other terms do, we also have this issue of life being lived under the sun. That's phrase used. Twenty-nine terms. Lots to be said about uh, labor and toil and work and even death. Sounds pretty encouraging so far, right? Right. This is why people see all that and they go, "This is a pessimistic book." I mean, this is just some. uh, This this can't be God inspired. This just couldn't be Solomon. I mean, it's just they're they're trying to figure out how all these things fit in. I think the key is to realize. That there's some other things that, that, that are said and mentioned in this book. Uh, God's wisdom. Wisdom or being wise is mentioned 52 times. God is mentioned 40 times. The heart of man. It says a lot about the heart of man in this book. 40 to 40 times. So it says a lot about fearing God. It talks a lot about uh, enjoying life. Right? I mean, those aren't pessimistic negative things. Are they fearing God and, and, and enjoying His good gifts? Not at all. In fact, the word, the Hebrew word for good or better, translated as better in some some cases, in this particular book, uh, is used 52 times. So it's used a lot more than than the term vanity or futility. So I think it's just important. We're drawn to the vanity. <laughs> We're drawn to those statements, and yet I think sometimes we have to pull back and say, but is that everything that's being said here? And as we go along, we'll, we'll make the point that it's not. That that uh, it does speak a lot about the futility of life uh, and the meaning of life, but there are a lot of uh, encouraging and, and positive things as well. So what, is, so what is the purpose of the book? Well, Ecclesiastes is a revelation of godly wisdom in response to the futility of human wisdom. It, it, is, a, it is a revelation of godly wisdom in response to the futility of human wis- wisdom. It's an exhortation. Again, think of, think of the preacher, right? It's an exhortation that in spite of the seeming futility involved in man's existence, the wise man or the wise woman should fear God and enjoy life as a gift from God. It's, it's like some gadget that you find in, in, in the garage it has been stored away for a long time. You know, and, I mean, like I'm talking about like years, maybe even 10, 15 years, and you kind of you, you're cleaning out the garage and you find this item, and you look at it, and your your kids look at it, and they have this look on their face like, what is that? What is it? What what is its purpose? Like an abdominizer? I've mentioned this before. I mean, that, that now now we're now we're separating the, the the generations out now, the ab rocker. You know what I'm saying? It's like you one of these things you bought, you saw it on TV, and thought I got to have that. And so you bought it and used it twice and can't believe that millions of people bought this particular thing. It went into your garage. You were too ashamed to just get rid of it, right? I mean, it just—it would have exposed your foolishness, and so you held on to it. But then 12, 15 years goes by, and you're cleaning the garage, and you pull the abdominizer out, out, which is basically just a piece of, like, formed plastic. You know, and your kids are like, is that a sled? I mean, what "What is this? (laughs) You sit in it. It's plastic. It's got handles. You know, it's like, you're like, no, that's actually, that was supposed to, uh, you know, give me a tighter stomach. And then they realize, well, obviously, you didn't. (laughs) <laughs> they look at that, they look at you and say, "You clearly only used it twice, right <laughs> it, it it's it 's sort of like that, but it, but but Ecclesiastes is about life, and it answers the same questions: What is life? What is the purpose of life? What do you do with it so the the purpose of Ecclesiastes is is to convince people of the uselessness of any world view that does not rise above the horizon of man himself. Solomon shows the vanity of living for worldly goals, the vanity of pursuing personal happiness apart from knowing and trusting God. He shows that the world is meant to be a vehicle for the expression of God's wisdom, goodness and truth, but that that's its real significance is that it's a vehicle to demonstrate those things, to express those things. Solomon clears the way for a truly adequate worldview that recognizes God himself as the highest value of all things and the meaningful life as the one that is lived in his service. He demonstrates that it is only God's work that endures and only God can impart abiding value to the life and the activity of man. As he says in Ecclesiastes 3.14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it, for God has so worked that men should fear him. So if you think about it, Ecclesiastes is the greatest graduation address for high school and college students. You're going to probably attend a couple of these maybe in the next few weeks. Uh, it's that kind of thing. It's 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 like it's like Solomon. It's as if he's before this group of people, like like a speaker's in front of a, a graduating class, and he's saying, "This is gonna this ought this speech this 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 ought to set the course for your life." And and if you're going off track, this ought to correct your course. Because this is what life is all about. We're gonna hear lots of these speeches here in the next few weeks. Unfortunately, we're not going to hear probably much at all that remotely resembles what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, right? We're going to hear a lot of charges and challenges and exhortations, but probably not many of them saying, fear God and keep his commandments. But it's that kind of address. It's, it's, it's not some sort of human philosophy that, that takes you to the edge of all the big questions in life and then just sort of leaves you there, just with no answers. It addresses true, we might call it true theistic philosophy. It deals with the realities of life. Someone said this about Ecclesiastes. If you want to know what is happening these days, it's all right here. If you want to know what's happening right now in our culture, in our time, and in our day, and in the news this week, it's right here. It's right here. So it deals with the realities of life, but it also points to God. It it points to God as the one who is righteous and holy. It points to Him as as the one who is in sovereign control over man and who, who exercises His providential grace. And it makes the point that life is meant to be lived for God. And that life is important because it's the only arena of opportunity and significant accomplishment available to man before he steps out into eternity. It's important. So let's just jump in, kind of pick up where we left off here with just verse 2. Take a few minutes, the time we have left this morning, and and look at verse 2. It's really an important verse. And again, we'll pick up the pace here starting next week. But... Verse 2 is important because everybody here, most of us know it. It is that verse that sort of pops into our minds. But it's, it's important not just because it introduces the book, but it also serves as sort of a bookend because when we get to the back of the book, it's repeated in the main body, at the end of the main body of the book in chapter 12, verse 8. So it's, it is significant. And, and, and notice what Solomon says. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is Vanity bummer. You know, it just has to say, should we read any further? You know, well, that depends on what we, that depends on what we think Solomon is getting at when he says that. Because if you just take the view that Solomon's just making the point that life is completely meaningless, then why do we need to read verse three? If that's all it is. It's just sort of this pessimistic view that life, there's nothing, It's just no meaning in life. Uh, then we ought to just quit reading right there. So what does it mean? This this will shape I think what we how we view things as we go we go forward and 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 when you think about what this verse means it's not as straightforward as you might think. And and the reason I say that is because the term vanity okay so we have this this term I mentioned earlier habel it's it's uh it's not used the same way all the time. And this is true of a lot of terms uh in both old and new testament but Uh, you you can't sometimes just take a term and look it up in the dictionary and say, well, that's what it means. Uh, It's why when you do look in a dictionary sometimes, you find some words, even in the English language, that have 15 definitions, (laughs) right? So when you come across a word like this, that's so prevalent in a book like this, in Ecclesiastes, uh, you and the book starts out this way. You've you got to really get your arms around what, is, what does Solomon mean by this particular term. And what you'll find is that as you go throughout the book that there's really th- a, at least three different ways uh, that it's used. And, and in each case, it's, it's looking at the nature of man's activity under the sun, but there's a particular emphasis based upon the context. So when we come across this term, as we go through we'll need, go through the book, we'll need to examine the context in order to know how this particular word is being used. But I thought it would be helpful for us to go back and to see how, the term, how this term was used before this period of time in, in redemptive history. In other words, let's go back and let's just say, okay, if Solomon wrote this book, how was this term used through, through the Old Testament up to this particular period of time? And I think what we'll find is that Solomon's not just grabbing a term here and importing his own meaning into this term. He's really picking up on a theme that is already mentioned in Scripture in a number of places, and he's just employing that term in his own way to accomplish a specific end. So we, we could go back. There's eight times the book this particular word is used in, in the book of Genesis, um, and they're all in Genesis chapter 4, and... The word Hebel is translated Abel. So this is Abel. This is Adam Adam and Eve, their son Abel. That's just, this is the term that's used for his, his name. It's translated as Abel in Genesis chapter 4 eight times. Don't hear of it again until we get to Deuteronomy chapter 3. And if you got to, I just want just, we're going to be, uh, this is Talladega. Okay, so get your fingers ready. All right, get your Bibles. We're going to be moving through some Old Testament scriptures just to get our, our hands, our arms around this, get a grasp on this. Deuteronomy 32. Uh, it's the song of Moses, which Moses declared to Israel before they entered Canaan. Verse 18, he says, You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom there's no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. It's an interesting phrase. They have provoked me to anger with their what idols? That's our term, vanities. Uh, so he's equating, or in most of your translations, I think it's translated as idols. If you you might have a comment in the in your center column if you have a reference Bible that actually says that it's it, it means vanities. It's this term habel. Uh, also, just and we'll come back to this, but just make a, a little note mentally here that you'll see this parallelism in chapter in verse 21. They have made me jealous. And then he says in the second part of that verse, or the next part, they have provoked me. So those are similar concepts. And then notice what's compared. With what is not God and with their idols, with their vanities. So you can say, what are idols? Idols are what is not God. What are idols? They're vanities. What are they? They are no God at all. Uh, you could flip over to Job. Job chapter 7, verse 1. Job says, Is not man forced to labor on earth, and are not his days like the days of a hired man? As a slave who pants for the shade, as a, and as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages. Verse 3. So am I allotted months of vanity. Might, we might assume that's the same word. It's actually not. It's, it's another term which tends to speak of deceit and falsehood. But he says, So am am I allotted months of vanity and nights of trouble are appointed me. And when I lie down, I say, When shall I arise? But the night continues, and I am continually tossing until dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. Remember that my life is but breath. My eye will not again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. Your eyes will be on me, but I will I will not be. When a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he who goes down to Shield does not come up. He will return again to his house, nor will his place know him any more. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions so that my soul would, would choose suffocation, death, rather than my pains. And then here's our term, verse 16. I waste away, I will not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are but a habel. What does your translation say? But a what? But a breath, Okay. Uh, In Job chapter 9, verse 29, Job speaks of toiling in vain. This will be a concept that comes up over in Ecclesiastes as well. Working, toiling, the activity we do in life and doing much of that seems in vain. In Job 35, verse 16, uh, Elihu reproves Job by speaking about the vanity of Job multiplying his words without knowledge implying that Job's word, w- words were, were empty, they were vain or futile. We might say that Job's words were without substance. There was no substance to what he was saying. He, the, the words were being multiplied, but the content wasn't there. The substance wasn't there. The knowledge wasn't there. In Psalm 31, verse 6, David said this, "...I hate those who regard vain idols." but I trust in the Lord. In other words, I hate those who regard false and empty and worthless, and then you could translate as vanities. In Psalm 39, David writes this in verse 1, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing the fire... The fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. Verse 4, Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days. Let me to know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere hebel, a mere breath. And similar to what we saw back in Job 7, describing the life of man as something that is passing, something that is brief, something that is, is uh, 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 a transient. Verse 6, he goes on, Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. That's the same word, Hebel, nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. I mean, it sounds, almost like, it sounds like Ecclesiastes. I mean, some things we'll see later. And now, Lord, for for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me because of the opposition of your hand. I am perishing. With reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere habel, a mere breath. Psalm 62, David writes this, verse 1, My soul was wait, waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. He, is, he only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. It says in, down in verse 8, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Men of low degree are only habel, vanity. And men of rank are a lie. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than breath. Habel. Verse 10, do not trust in oppression and do not vainly hope. Habal, this is just a, it's the the verb form. To act emptily, to become vain in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work exactly what Ecclesiastes says, right? God's going to bring us to account for all things. Psalm 78. Asaph is recounting the faithfulness and the goodness of God to guide and to provide for his people in spite of their unfaithfulness at times. And he makes a reference back to an event recorded in Numbers 11 when the Lord sent the quail and and then he judged the people for their greed. And in Psalm 78, verse... I'd love to read a lot of these, just down to verse 32. In spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wonderful works. So he brought their days to an end in Habel, futility, and their years in sudden terror or or dismay or ruin, calamity. In other words, their days were cut short, and the days and the years that they did have left, whenever they sought for satisfaction apart from God, they always came up empty-handed. Psalm 94 Verse, verse 8, Pay heed, you senseless among the people, and when, you, and, 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 when, and when will you understand stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. Hebel. What's the, what's the emphasis there? Well, it's not on the temporary nature of man's thoughts. So it's not that idea of transience or, 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 or temp, temporalness, temporality. It's on the emptiness. It's on the, it's on the impotence, the foolishness, the nonsensical nature of what these men are thinking and saying. I mean, they're saying God doesn't know, God doesn't hear. It's, 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 not, it's not about that what they're saying is passing away. It's just saying that what they're saying doesn't make any sense. Psalm one forty four, verse four or verse one. Blessed be the, be the Lord, my Rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. My loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and, and He in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son, son of man that you think of him? Man is like Habel, a mere breath, and his days are like a passing shadow. Something that is moving, something that is changing, something that is here but then soon gone. Proverbs 13, 11, wealth obtained by Hebel. It actually translated in New American Standard as fraud. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. In other words, wealth that is gained by vanity... Or the New King James says dishonesty, but ESV, if you have an ESV, English Standard Version, it says hastily. Wealth that is gained hastily rather than by that which is gathered, literally gathered or collected by hand. That that kind of wealth is going to to dwindle. Proverbs 21, verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. The acquisition of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor, hebel, the pursuit of death. Proverbs 31.30, a lot of you are familiar with this. Charm is deceitful, beauty is habel, vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, shall, she shall be praised. All of these are examples of the ways in which this particular term was used leading up to or around the time in which, which Ecclesiastes was written. Uh, then, quickly, just uh, some examples of how this term is employed after the days of Solomon. It's interesting where this term goes because it primarily goes towards the issue of idolatry. First Kings in First Kings chapter 16, uh, in in verses uh, 13 and 26, it's verses 13 and 26, it speaks of Israel provoking the Lord with their habel, with their idols, their vanities. In Second Kings chapter 17, verse 14, and beyond that. This That particular passage explains the reasons for the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to the Assyrians. And this is what it says in verse 15. They rejected His statutes, the Lord's statutes, and His covenant, which He made with their fathers, and His warnings with which He warned them. And they followed vanity, Habel, and became vain, Habel, and went after the nations which surrounded them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do, do like them, and they forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God, and they made for themselves molten images. So they went after these, this idolatry. So again, we see this connection of vanity and idolatry. They forsook something, and they went after something else. They rejected something, and they began to follow after something else. They stopped worshiping God, and they started worshiping something else. Jeremiah eight nineteen. Behold, listen, the cry of the daughter of my people from a distant land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not within her? Why have they provoked me with their graven images, with foreign habel, foreign vanities, foreign... Idols, strange vanities. In his satire on idolatry in Jeremiah 10, Jeremiah writes uh, there in verse 3, this is several places, verse 3 he says, For the customs of the peoples are delusion, habel. He's talking about these idols that they've made because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. Verse 8, but they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood, Again, the term's used there. Verse 14, Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his molten images are deceitful, and there is no breath in them. They are habel, worthless, a work of mockery. And in the time of their punishment, they will perish. So he's just saying idols are worthless, they are futile, they are vain, because they are lifeless. They are They are powerless. Jeremiah 14, 22, Are there any among the vanities, Hebel, idols of the nations who give rain? Or can the heavens grant showers? Is it not you, O Lord our God? Therefore we hope in you, for you are the one who has done all these things. So just example after example, what you see after the time of of Solomon, especially into the prophets, is this tight connection between vanity and idolatry. And Solomon's self-will will actually make this connection for us. So back to Ecclesiastes, just to sort of wind things down here. When Solomon, I, I mean, that was, that was a, a marathon. Um, but here's, here's the thing. When Solomon says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, what does he mean? Does Solomon mean that life is fleeting, that life is brief or temporal or transitory, that life is like the soap bubble? That sort of it's, it's there, and then poop, it's gone. Is, it, is life like the breath on a cold winter day when you breathe and you can see your breath, and then, but it, after it gets out about this far, it disappears. Is it like the steam off a hot cup of coffee there, there for a moment, but then gone? Is life under the sun vapor-like? As James 4.14 says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Is that what Solomon means? Or does Solomon mean that life, in light of the cursed condition of the universe and the debilitating effects that that has on our earthly experience, that life is futile, that life lacks substance, that life doesn't satisfy us, or that, that life sometimes leaves us feeling empty? Is that what Solomon means? Or does Solomon mean that life is incomprehensible or enigmatic, uh, that at the end of the day we have a lot of unanswered questions? Does Solomon mean that life is puzzling and perplexing or that sometimes God's purposes are unknowable? We see the things going on around us. We see some of those things that are, seem to be very monotonous in life, and yet at the end of the day, sometimes we, just, we don't have an answer. I mean, there's things that are going on, and we just can't. We think we got it nailed down, and then all of a sudden, we think we figured out the pattern, and then God does something to throw us off, right? It's like we got this thing figured out. We see the pattern, and then God does something that <laughs> doesn't fit the pattern, and we're left with these questions. Which one of these meanings does Solomon draw on in Ecclesiastes? Thank you. All of them, all of them, but context will determine the focus of each usage. So what I'm saying is some people read verse 2 and they just go, life is meaningless. That's it. Let's just close the book. And I'm saying, no, it's life is a lot of things. (laughs) Life has a lot of questions. If, If you're trying to find satisfaction in life alone, apart from God, you're in trouble. Life's also brief. Right? It's passing. It's all those things. So Solomon begins by declaring the vanity of life under the sun. But Ecclesiastes isn't, isn't about some kind of skeptical agnosticism. It's about enjoying life as a gift from God. It's about exercising reverent faith and trust in God. It isn't simply a message about futility. It is a message of hope. Ecclesiastes represents the painful autobiography of Solomon who for much of his life squandered God's blessings on his own personal pleasure rather than for God's glory. Israel's most powerful king at the end of his life feeling powerless, unable to control his life, unable to control what happens to his work and to his wealth after his death, and unable to prevent his death. At one point in his life, surrounded by success and affluence and pleasure, but later hitting rock bottom in his miserable existence, returning from the mire, I believe repenting from idolatry and returning to the Lord, never giving up his belief in God, not always understanding the plan, the inner workings of God's creation and the personal providence of God, sometimes frustrated by the plan, But ultimately embracing the plan and coming to the right conclusions. And then writing to warn subsequent generations not to make the same tragic error. Living with a burning desire to teach these life-saving truths. Helping us to know how fulfilling life can be when we see things from God's perspective. So, Solomon's message, one guy put it this way says, Solomon's message is not that nothing matters. Because that's what people read verse 2, that's kind of the takeaway, is that no, this doesn't matter. Solomon's message is not that nothing matters, but that everything matters. Everything matters. Everything matters in life. And the more that we study this book, the better we will understand why. That's what Ecclesiastes is about. So it's not pessimistic. It's a book. It's full of hope, full of counsel, full of good direction and instruction, and in some cases will be correction for, for us, correction for us. So we look forward to, to, to getting in a little bit further. So next week we plan to look pick up here in verse 3 and work our way through this first sort of section of the book down through verse verses, uh, down, uh, 3 down to verse 11. Okay? So look forward to picking up there.